Hi guys, happy 2020. We're going to kick off the new year with an extra special episode on Hortz Schultze, the guy behind starting and building the Ritz-Carlton brand we know today. Since his stories were so fun and insightful to listen to, we decided to split his story into two episodes. This first bit is super cool because he opens up about how he started his career as a hotelier, which can actually relate to how we think about our careers today. Hope you enjoy. So I called my friend in San Francisco and I said, I'm going back to Europe. This is barbaric. The heat, I cannot sleep in the night. We're serving fish without fish for <laughs> Nuts. But, what did he say? And he said, I tell you what, we happen to need a waiter here. We're in a French restaurant. Come right away and, and we can use you. And we have fish forks and fish knives. <laughs> so, so, so you just you just quit and left? I just quit and took a bus. You're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Wong, and on today's show, we have Hortz Schultze, the former president and COO of the Ritz-Carlton luxury hotel chain, who later on became the founding president and CEO of Capella, an ultra-luxury hotel group. Capella is a hotel where President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un shook hands for the very first time at the 2018 historic summit in Singapore. But before we get into how Horst got into running the top hotel chains, we're going to dive into his early years that were defining moments for how he made choices for his career and how he faced his own weaknesses and challenging circumstances at work that eventually got him named the Corporate Hotelier of the World by Hotels Magazine when he was 52 years old. Now, I'm guilty of this, but how many times have you seen a celebrity or industry leader featured on the front page of a magazine and just thought, this person made it, without ever really giving a second thought about what it might have taken for him or her to get on the front cover? For Horst Schultze, when he joined the hospitality industry in the 1950s, it wasn't a practical job to get into, or even with a straightforward path to get to the top. And just like many of us, we might grow up wanting to do something that's not so practical. And that often means we're going to have to hustle to figure things out along the way. For me, I grew up wanting to be a news anchor, and I thought I could study my way there. But when I graduated from college in 2009, I realized my peers were moving to major cities to intern in the media industry with no earned income until there was a job opening. I also second-guessed myself and wasn't sure how much I really wanted to do it. And I eventually went into business. So as a millennial, I might not be the person you want to hear from on how to pursue your career ambitions. But I think you could get something out of someone from the silent generation, the generation that came before the baby boomers. Horst Schulze was born in Germany in 1939. It was the same year World War II started, and also when his dad was drafted into the army. Horst recalls bombings and alarms going off. He says his mom was worried and crying all the time since his dad became a prisoner of war in Russia. 
but Hortz also remembers a moment of hope after the war ended. I was playing in a clay pit with, with another boy the, when somebody came from the village uh, and said, run home, your dad is coming home. At that time, there was nothing in Germany. And somebody from the village passed him with a bike and, and gave the news when, when a prisoner of war came back. And that was the big news. And I was running home. In the meantime, the whole village had assembled. And I went through the crowd and I looked at, the, at this tall man standing there and I said, Dad. And that's when he knew that who, who I was. I was seven and, and that's my meeting with my dad. Hortz started to regain a normal life with both parents at home and as his country began to rebuild. After the war, people were working jobs that were practical, like in engineering, architecture, even carpentry or roofing. But for some odd reason, Horst wanted to pursue something different. I, for some reason, and nobody knows why, developed interest to work in the hotel business. So when I was 11, I went to my parents and said, I want to work in a hotel. Was there a hotel in your village? Never seen a hotel, never been what in a hotel. Movies? Never. I, I don't know. Maybe I read something. But I kept on mm. persisting on it. My parents then started to inquire what it would mean. They were told, well, the best thing is to find a very good hotel to start his career. And they found a hotel about 100 kilometers away, which was very far at that time. It took hours to mm-hmm. get there. At 14, I left home and moved to that hotel. What did you do for the hotel? Washing dishes, cleaning tables, cleaning ashtrays, shining shoes. It was a menial beginning. Before you left your parents to work at this hotel, what type of faith did you grow up with as a child? Well, it, it was institutional, frankly. I, I went into a confirmation class. At that time, it was norm to have in school every day one hour religion. We knew the words. We could have recited pages and pages of the Bible. But unfortunately, what we didn't really learn was the meaning. After three years of study with the, with the pastor for the confirmation, and he gave me Psalm 91.4, was he will take you under his wings and your confidence will be under his opinions. His truth will be your shield and armor. Mm. I took that with me and I put it away. And when I needed it, I dug it out. <laughs> did, did you feel like you needed it? You know, when you're 14 years old and, and 15 and 16 and you're on your own, you, 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 you get yourself in troubles here and there. So every time I was scared and every time I realized I did something wrong, I dug out my and said, you will take me under your wings. So be yeah. sure you will. Be sure you will. <laughs> I need you. <laughs> so so you, d- you did apply that, that truth into your life when you were young. Uh, absolutely. But unfortunately, it wasn't in a deep relation with my maker. And, and unfortunately, it was just like a bellboy. I called the bellboy and said, do this now. And then it was over. Kind of sad, but that's what it was. And, and before I went there, my parents kept on saying, this is the best hotel in this region. That's why my mm. parents took it, because they wanted me to start off my career in the best hotel. But this is a hotel where we could never go. This is a hotel for only for fine ladies and gentlemen. That message was given to me by the general manager when I started. Very mm. clearly, we are the servants, and there are fine ladies and gentlemen, and here you are here to serve. 
But someone at the hotel taught and treated Horst to be beyond someone who was there just to serve. His name was Carl Zettler. And Horst calls this man his maitre d', which means head waiter in French. And, and then, of course, the maitre d'. And when he talked to us, there were a couple of other kids who started at the same time. We, have a, mm-hmm. we lived in the dorm together. And the, the maitre d' told us, now understand, from tomorrow on, you show up at 7 o'clock in the morning. But don't show up to work. Show up to create excellence in what you're doing. In fact, the funny thing is he used the English word excellence as he talked to us in German. Of course, I went over my head. I was 14 years old. Excellence in cleaning ashtrays, washing dishes, shining shoes. I didn't get that. But he kept on talking about excellence. And what is more, he clearly defined himself as a person of excellence. Can you describe him a little bit? Tall, stately gentleman. He was about 72 or 73 at the time. The picture of a gentleman. And then, of course, working at that time in tails. Everything perfection. Could You could have shaved in his shoes. They were shining perfect. Everything was perfect. He approached the table dignified, class, but humble at the same time. He was the ultimate elegance. But what I learned from him, elegance without warmth is arrogance. Mm. He spoke to you, a boy at that time. And, and kept on doing that and knew very well that he has to repeat and repeat and repeat what is important should the young people grow up with, with it when there. And he was committed to create young people as much as he could that leave there and go into the world with a, with a great foundation. Horst worked as an apprentice under the maitre d' for three years. And at that time, working in a trade in Germany required to go to trade school once a week. And that's when other kids from other restaurants and hotels from the area came together to a large school. And two years in, Horst remembers a time when his teacher asked the students to write a three-page essay on, what do you now feel about your industry? So what do you do? I went back to work that night. And I think, what I'm going to write, what I'm going to write. And I observed something that I had seen before, but never, never got it quite. The major D went to a table and I realized, and it was a changing moment in my life. I realized the guests on that table were proud that he came to them. Now, wait a minute, it's a reversal. We are the servants and they are the important ladies and gentlemen. And, and I, I suddenly realized everybody in the room felt he's the most important person in the room. Everybody respected him. So my essay that I was writing that night, I wrote about him and I named that essay, We Are Ladies and Gentlemen, Serving Ladies and Gentlemen. With other words, we are defining ourselves either as ladies and gentlemen or as servants. But we can be ladies and gentlemen. And for the first time in my life, I realized I can define myself at work. I can define myself as a person of excellence or as a bum. It doesn't matter. Mm. I am in charge of what I am, no matter what my job is. Horst didn't want to be defined by where his parents came from or how much he was paid. The maitre d' helped him realize he could still define himself to be a gentleman by the way he worked, by the way he served, dressed, and behaved with excellence, dignity, and class. 
By the time he was 18, Horst took his first job at a resort in southern Germany, and a year later, he moved to Switzerland to work at the Bellevue Palace, a five-star luxury hotel owned by the Swiss government. Horst says it was pretty common to move from job to job in Europe because to be successful meant he had to learn new cultures, new languages, new ways of working. And by the time he was 20, he was working on the Holland American Line, the ship that took him to America for the first time. The, the image in the meantime, America, the streets are all out of gold and the buildings out of silver and diamonds. We landed in Hoboken. We said, wow, wait a minute, what is that? And it was a, a, a big disappointment. However, I, I had a one great experience for, first. What? At that time, mm -hmm. to, to turn over a ship took about three days. So the way the stewards mm -hmm. were, we were free. So what did mm -hmm. we do? We went off the boat and everybody jumped in taxis and so on, went to the places that they desired to see that we have heard from, Times Squares, uh, Empire State Building, et cetera, et cetera. Taxis. Where did you go? And I said, the vault of Astoria, the glory of the surrounding and the excitement of the traffic around me. I went into that lobby and I stayed in lobby by the big grandfather clock and I was staying there and, and I said, wow, I have arrived. Now I want to work here one day. <laughs> Sitting at the Waldorf Astoria was a reminder that working at the finest hotels was where he wanted to be. So Hortz left the cruise ship to work at a hotel in Paris. And by 25 years old, he became an assistant waiter at the Savoy, a five-star hotel in London known for dining political figures and celebrities alike. And one day in 1964, Horst was offered a job opportunity while waiting a table. I was serving a guest. And he, he was a guest a couple of times who then suddenly said to me, uh, where are you from? And he started talking to me and he said, would you like to work in America? Now, mind you, if he would have said South Africa, I would have said, yeah, I love to also. If he would have said Tanzania, <laughs> I would have said yes or Sweden. It doesn't matter. I said, oh, yeah, oh, I would love to, love to. And he said, I'll tell you what, I give me your, your details. I send you papers. And once you get this paper, you go to the embassy, get your papers and start communicating with me, blah, blah, blah. I was sure enough, he sent me papers. He told me we're opening a new hotel in Houston, Texas. So I then bought a ticket on the ship where I used to work on <laughs> as a passenger and went over to New York on the Honda America line. When I arrived in New York, I had a ticket for a Greyhound bus from New York to Houston and $40. That was it. So so this guy told you, hey, Hortz, I have this hotel, a new hotel. I'll give you the papers to, to get here, but you need to get your own way to Houston. Was, oh, sure. that, was that the agreement? Yeah. Mind you, I came from Germany and it was late June. I walked from the Greyhound station to the YMCA with my two uh -huh. suitcases and uh, could not believe how hot it was and hot and humid in Houston. I couldn't even comprehend it. And I was staying in the Y without air condition and started working in the hotel the next day. So what, so what happened after you were working there? Were you happy? Was this what you thought the American dream no, no. was? So I was very disappointed. First day I worked as a waiter, I had an order of seafood, fish. So I looked for the fish fork and fish knife, which was an absolute must in the fine restaurants in Europe. And there wasn't any. 
And I thought that is barbaric. Oh my gosh, how can I do that? My mother D would be so upset if he would see me serving fish without a fish knife. Fish before. And I mean, and, and it's amazing how silly that is. I, I have to laugh about it today, how ridiculous my thought was. Again, I worked in the finest places and I had learned it was beaten into my brain what you do, what you cannot do. And I had developed a certain serious beliefs. So look, now, by the way, I don't have any in my home now and I eat fish without fish fork, fish knife. I couldn't care less. But at the time, that was outrageous. So I called my friend in San Francisco and I said, I'm going back to Europe. This is barbaric. The heat, I cannot sleep in the night. We're serving fish without fish fork. <laughs> Nuts. But, what did he say? And he said, I tell you what, we happen to need a waiter here. We're in a French restaurant. Come right away and, and we can use you. And, and we have fish forks and fish knives. <laughs> so, so, so you just you just quit and left? I just quit and took a bus. So Hortz took the Greyhound from Houston to San Francisco, where he waited tables at the French restaurant in the evenings. And during the day, he worked as a room service waiter in the Hilton to stay connected to hotels. He also lived in a tiny studio in a terrible district in San Francisco. So far, moving to the U.S. didn't seem like a good idea. So I'm working in San Francisco with the only intent to go back to Europe and continue my career there. And in the meantime, I was hoping to get a promotion in the hotel to room service supervisor. The reason why I wanted that, because I could see they promoted supervisor to other jobs and that shop became available once in a while. And I knew I was the best waiter there. And I knew the manager of room service was German. So I knew I had an in here. I knew that would be my job, would be promoted to supervisor right here. Couple of months, sure enough, the job became available. That was my job. I would do it, stay another year, and then go back for my career in Europe. And wh what happened? I didn't get the position. Somebody else did. Oh. This was an earth-shaking experience for me, by the way. And, and what was my reaction? Stupid management, mm. crazy management. Hortz struggled to understand why he didn't get a promotion. He felt he was the best and deserved it. But after some self-reflection, he came to realize he wasn't as perfect as he thought. It took me a few months to recognize that the young man who got the promotion deserved it more than I did. You know, I was very young. I went out in the night. I sometimes had too many drinks at night. In the morning when I came to work, I was tired. You could see that I was tired. I was late a few minutes. This young man was always there in time. Sometimes when I left, the, the manager said, host, do this and this. Why me? Why not this guy? He never did that. And that's when I went to my little room and I talked to the maitre d'. And I said, I'm sorry. I went to work to work. You taught me to go to work to create excellence. I didn't do that. I went to work to work. I knew all of a sudden it was me. It wasn't stupid management. It was stupid me. And I remembered my own essay that I'm defining myself at work. And I, I defined myself as tired, as unreliable. But that day I recognized and I said, I'm sorry, this will never happen again. I will go to work to create excellence, not spend more hours, but in those hours be excellent. And I had this 
this awakening. And from there on, my career took off. So after you got promoted, you decided to stay in the U.S. It so happened, I heard that Cornell gives summer courses. And so I took a summer course and during vacation. And I came to the realization, if I would do the next seven years during my vacation courses at Cornell, I could more or less finish the hotel studies. Horst didn't just want to serve at hotels, but lead in the industry. So at 28 years old, Horst spent his summer vacations at school to study hotel management. Meanwhile, he was working full-time in food and beverage, F&B, getting more promotions and more responsibilities. Horst moved to Chicago, where he became the catering manager at the Hilton and got promoted to assistant F&B director then offered F&B director when he moved to Cincinnati to overlook two Hilton hotels. Let's take a break. And when we're back, we'll hear where Horst went when he got a degree in hotel management. I wanted to take this break to talk about something I realized on the show. The average age of my interview guests so far are about 65 years old, and they didn't grow up with an easy life. But we're honestly in different times. Life has improved, and the hard work of our parents may have, in fact, paved the way for us to play harder. We all mess our kids up in various ways. We either err on the side of wanting them to be good or on the side of wanting them to be happy. Even well-meaning parents, I think it's really easy to be insulated by wealth. Who's controlling her, it's still influencing her greatly. Earlier this year, Bloomberg wrote about how super-rich Americans are getting younger. The study suggests that this might have to do with a vast transfer of wealth to the younger generation. We have millennials inheriting huge amounts of money who often don't know what to do about it. I finally came to a place where I understood that my family wealth and my position won't change and it will be a part of my life for the rest of my life. The tools that I was given weren't sufficient enough, especially with a large amount of, of assets that I'm going to have to come into one day. These kids joined Core Venture, a nonprofit program which helps young inheritors in their 20s and 30s navigate the complexities of wealth. It's tough because they didn't get asked to be in their positions, but they're making the most out of it by getting some guidance. Everybody is there to give you a comfortable shove in the right direction. And I'll call it a shove because that's what it is, but you feel like you're in a safe area when that occurs. If you don't feel like you belong to your family of wealth because you want to hide it, you're ashamed of it, that was me. If you're asking the question, is this it? Is there more in this life? There has to be. I think this program is for you as well. If you or someone you know wants help to think about what they can actually do with their wealth, check out Core Venture. You can find out more about it on our website. Welcome back. Horst is now F&B director in Cincinnati. I stayed there for a year in Cincinnati and I had an offer to come as food and beverage director to Chicago in the number one Hyatt hotel. During that time, did you remember what your faith was like? Were you going to church? I mean, no, no. Faith. I was too busy. I tell you, Chris, I was very good in praying Psalm 91.4 when I had a problem. And as soon as the problem was gone, I, I shelved it again. At director level, Horst started getting headhunted. And when he was 34, he got an offer from the Hyatt Group. And by the time he finished his degree at Cornell, 
He proved himself to be a top performer as an F&B director, so much so that he didn't expect what the Hyatt was going to offer him next. I went to Chicago first and uh, worked as a food and beverage director. A little bit over a year, they wanted to promote me to general manager. Ever general that. manager, that's high up. Everybody dances on the, on the table when they get promoted to general manager. I didn't accept it. And he called from San Francisco. Our headquarters was in San Francisco at the time. I said, no. And he said, are you leaving the company? No. And he said, well, so what's the matter? I said, I want to be rooms manager first. Because I remembered my own promise. I will create mm -hmm. excellence. I go to work with excellence. I didn't think I could be a great general manager and create excellence as a general manager since I had never worked in rooms. And that's true. You were in F&B. That's right. And so he said, it doesn't matter. We give you a great rooms manager to help you. I said, I don't care. And he actually flew to Chicago to talk to me. He, he thought I would leave the company. I said, I won't leave. I said, let me work as a rooms manager for a year. Mm. And after that, give me the worst hotel in the company. Horst says he only emphasized working at the worst Hyatt hotel because the president emphasized how they were offering him to be GM at the finest hotel in the company, where they felt he would be a good fit. But still... Horst still didn't feel he was ready to be an excellent GM without any experience in rooms management. And Horst was convinced if he got that experience, he would really be ready to be the best GM at any location, even the worst hotel in the company. So the president relented and gave him that rooms role. And after a year, Horst was promoted to GM. And then a year in as general manager, Horst got a call from the president. And then a year later, he called me and said, remember what you said years ago? I said, yeah, I know. I want to be a rooms guy. And, and you did it. Thank you. He said, no, 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 no. You said you want to have the worst to tell in the company. We got it. You're going to move to, to Pittsburgh. <laughs> why, why was it the worst hotel? It was a dilapidated hotel, particularly with a very a militaristic union. Uh, Pittsburgh mm -hmm. was well known for that. And the but, occupancy was below 30%. It was disaster. It was a disaster hotel. Howard Johnson Hotel, which we took over, with Hyatt took over. In the 1970s, life generally improved in the U.S. Travel became more frequent and hospitality was booming. Major hotel chains like Hyatt were buying up old hotels that had low occupancies, renovating and turning them around. So it wouldn't be an easy task for the general manager to not only manage the hotel operations and its employees, but to also bring in a culture of change and improvement. On top of that, Pittsburgh had another challenge. I was warned before I got there from general managers and other companies, they said, oh, crying out loud, don't go to Pittsburgh. This is the worst. Nobody can do a good job because there's a military union there. In fact, the first day I was there, the union boss came in with five of his lieutenants. They were sitting in a circle around me with the union boss chair in the middle. His back turned against me. He finally said, to one of those guys, ask him if he ever saw a car blown up. And I said, well, no. And he turned around halfway on his chair and said, I meant with somebody in it. Hortz was not in a good situation. He says he was getting intimidated every day, five days a week by the union leader. 
He was cursed at and threatened if he didn't raise their wages. And he wasn't in a position to with a hotel doing so poorly. Hortz had an uphill battle to climb, but he wasn't going at it alone. The Hyatt corporate office gave back office support. Hortz got some advice from a labor lawyer. He literally called me every day to remind me, take three steps forward, take two, three quarter back, and maybe gain one inch. Never be rigid. And with your employee, keep on being the leader, not the manager. The Hyatt also felt Horst could use some support with marketing and PR. But Horst struggled to buy into marketing until one lady named Sherry proved him wrong. There was a, pro- a corporate program, marketing program, which I didn't like. I hated that program mm-hmm. and I didn't institute it because I didn't like it. So the corporate office, the vice president marketing came into hotel and, and applied it himself. He hired a young lady to do it, to do this program. So consequently, I thoroughly disliked her because she was forced on me by corporate office. And Did I, she convince and I, you of that marketing program? Oh, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I instituted it later. I believe in it totally. And, oh. and of course, everybody from, from corporate came to train with her. And she was a very honorable person. She was extremely successful. She became a salesperson of the company, number one in the company, and all of Hyatt. So I started to respect her a lot. Little did he know how important it would be to have marketing on his side. How the union worked and went on strikes was unpredictable. Horst recalls what happened on Christmas Day in 1976. This, it's hard to believe today. This is, sounds like a fairy tale. The, the union was ridiculous. Hyatt's philosophy was that Christmas, every employee gets a gift of a turkey. So mm-hmm. Christmas, we started giving turkeys. Guess what? Mm-hmm. They stopped us. The union stopped us. He said, you cannot bribe our people. And they went on a strike. And then wh- how did you respond as general manager? Well, as general manager, for instance, they, they, they struck me a few times. But the first time they struck us, we went immediately outside. It was it happens to be very, very cold. In the afternoon, late afternoon, very cold outside. So we went right away outside, served hot cider and hot tea for the employees and, and, and served them wow. sweet rolls and so on. Because, frankly, I knew the TV crews would come. The TV crews came and said, well, what are you doing serving your employees? They said, even though there is a misunderstanding, they're still my, my employers and I love them. And of course, that on every news channel in, in <laughs> Pittsburgh at the time, you know. Suffice it to say, the hotel became extremely successful. So it was at 30% average occupancy before you joined. What was the occupancy after you left? 80%. And the average rate tripled, Nelly. It was, a, it was a, it's just a major success. And of course, I was consequently promoted. Up until this point, Horst hustled to get to where he was and gave up a lot to pursue excellence at work. He moved to where the opportunities were to get experience working in different countries, different states, and work cultures. He used his vacation days for education. He solved problems for the company like they were his own. He even rejected a dream job to gain more skills. And after three years in Pittsburgh, Hortz was promoted to go to Detroit but he wanted to take someone with him. Remember the young lady from marketing. 
and I worked with her for over two years, and I thought I must be crazy. So I asked her for a date, and she said, oh my goodness, we were good friends. Why do you have to do that to me? How can you destroy our friendship? She, she kept on saying no, and finally I said to her, Sherry, I understand it, but one day when, when you are old and gray, you will remember this moment, and I know you will regret it. And, <laughs> and, and when I asked her again, she said, all right, one drink we're going to have. And then, and eight months later, we were married. Wow. And I'm totally in love. And, but you know what? I still am. And, and, and you're speaking because you've had 41 years of successful marriage. It's just, and you know, I, I'm excited to go home this afternoon. I'm in my office. I'm going to get excited to go home and see my wife. <laughs> and, and I tell you right now, I said, drive into my home. Like every day, I will thank God for my wife. For Horst, meeting Sherry changed his life. He says he was in previous failed relationships, but something about Sherry stood out. Sherry's pursuit of excellence at work didn't just stem from herself, but from a genuine faith in God. This would eventually give Horst the anchor he needed to make major decisions later on in life. For Horst, he saw how seeing everything in life as a decision allowed him to commit to excellence. Grace, everything in life, and people don't seem to get it. Everything is a decision. Let's put, let me put it this way. Even if you believe in God or not, it's a decision. That decision may evolve. So, and like I have a very good friend who is a proud atheist, proud of it. Tells me, well, you don't know if there is God or not, and you can't prove it. And I said, well, <laughs> you can't prove that there isn't. So, in other words, it's a decision. I made a decision for hope, and you, my friend, mm -hmm. made a decision against hope. And, and the longer I made a decision, by the way, the more I know I made the right decision. But going away from mm -hmm. that, everything in life, even if you if you love your job or not, is a decision. But you have to repeat your decision every day. I make a decision mm -hmm. every morning, excellence, and that you enjoy it, mm -hmm. that you will enjoy the people that you work with. It, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter if they deserve it or not. That's not an issue. Love them. Make a decision to enjoy it, to, to see beauty and what is in your work. And, and don't go to work to work. Go to work to be excellent for a purpose. Create a purpose for yourself. The Bible even says people will perish without purpose. So why don't you see the purpose in, at your work? If the company don't give it to you, and that's what I mean, companies have to give the employees purpose and not just work. And, but if they mm. don't give it to you, capture it yourself. You are in charge. Mm. Horst decided that every day he was going to go to work to pursue excellence as a hotelier, an idea that got ingrained in him from an early age. But not everyone will get the chance to be trained by this maitre d', who not only talked about excellence, but demonstrated it to Horst. Like how much have you thought about what it means to pursue excellence and what you're doing today? And do you see the value of putting in this effort? This idea of excellence does seem worth pursuing, but like what Horst says, it would be a decision, a daily decision that comes at a cost and may take time to figure out what it means for you. But for Horst, 
it was definitely worth pursuing because it didn't just give him success in his career, but it also allowed him to find a purpose to go to work beyond excellence. And we will get to when his faith became a daily decision in his life. We're gonna call this a wrap, but Sherry would later be the one who'd be praying for Horst to make an important career decision. The decision when he said yes to investors to joining a new development company. This company would later develop Ritz-Carlton into the luxury hotel chain we know today. I said to my wife, if I would take a job like that, I would go top end. I would build the finest hotel company in the world and uh, do something above what is now the leaders uh, in the continental hired and so on. Uh, I would go above that in market segment. And, and, uh, and so I started talking about it. My wife noticed I was getting confused because they kept on calling. <laughs> and so she started praying. Yeah. She invited me to pray with her. But that one door would open and one door would close. When you joined, what was it like that they, they talked to you about? The name? And my principal said, well, it so happens that the Ritz-Carlton in Boston is for sale at the same time. And I said, oh no, that's a terrible place. Don't buy that. Until next time, we'll find out how Hortz got to be the visionary and legend behind building the Ritz-Carlton luxury hotel chain, how he did it, and also how he started developing a genuine faith, a personal relationship with God that changed the way he viewed his prestige and purpose at work. This is Grace Huang, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to find out when part two of Hortz Schultz's career story gets released. Hope you have a blessed week. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is edited by me, Joshua Huang, and Michael Landry. Audio mixing by Abel Wilson and Joshua Huang. If you like what you hear, please follow us and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening. <laughs>